The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your hosts, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley with security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com. Welcome to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Today, we are talking about our 2022 Security Clearance Compensation Report. This is an annual report that we do over at clearancejobs.com. Provides excellent insight and data into the state of the security clearance workforce, especially when it comes to what people are getting paid, which is a pretty important topic. What are people making in the national security space kind of can show some some trends around that. And today I'm chatting with Jill Hamilton. She's the editor over at clearancejobs.com. So it's a clearance jobs party in this part of the episode today. I'm sorry. She's going to talk about she puts together the report every year, analyzes the data. She develops the survey and the questions. So she is intimately familiar with what this survey is and with the data set here. So I I know data is very hot right now, Jill. So let's go ahead and nerd out about the data. Who fills out the clearance jobs compensation survey and kind of what is the purpose of the survey for clearance jobs? Yeah, I love doing this every year. We had this past year over 52,000 respondents, which is a 14% increase from the prior year. And then after we exclude out participants who don't have a security clearance or who are active duty or students or unemployed, we had over 24,000 responses that we looked at. And then from those respondents, many come from federal agencies, as well as all the different clearance levels and federal employees, contractors alike weigh in on the survey. We really look at this industry each year because we want to provide a resource to both recruiters and candidates on compensation in the security clearance industry. And it really does give a good pulse point of where we're at each year. So sometimes we can feel the different movements. You know, you watch the news, you hear from candidates, you hear from recruiters on things that they're feeling. But when you can put real numbers behind those feelings, you really add a lot of validity to the claims that you're hearing. And so I think, especially in the defense industry, the pandemic took some time to shake things up a little. 2020 was all about supporting the people, keeping things going, making sure family needs are met. You know, if people had to work from home and all the kids came home from school. But then fast forward 2021, government funding stopped and everybody's expected to go back to normal, even though the rest of the world is still not normal. So, you know, obviously remote work is challenging to find for many clearance holders. So now we have this major battle for clear talent, like the real estate market a little bit, where it's really a candidate market. You feel a lot of those pulses happening in the numbers that come out of the survey this year. Yeah, no, I mean, it's data plus feelings. It's like IQ plus EQ. You know, <laughs> you need both. Like you need to know the data. Then we're just looking at the demographics and the shifts. So I wanted to talk about the demographic shifts because that was a big part of this 2022 compensation report. What are we seeing in terms of the generational shift in respondents? It's an interesting look at that because last year's survey, millennials and Gen Xers were equal in their numbers. This year, what you see is 
Gen Xers, just like everything else, I'm like held pretty steady. <laughs> but then we, there's a bump up, a 6% increase in millennials and a 6% decrease in boomers. And even those coveted Gen Z, the new generation coming into the defense industry, there was a 1% bump from them as well. So it's good to see those shifts happening. It does change some of the compensation numbers as older talent rolls off into either other options or their second act in life or they're retiring. And then you see the millennial field growing even more in the cleared industry. So I think that's going to be a continued trend and they're going to be pushing for more money, especially in the next coming years as they jump into these bigger shoes to fill. You'll see that reconciling a little bit later. It was also good to see women had a 1% increase in numbers. So it'll be interesting to watch if that demographic continues to shift in that direction going forward. I think remote work and flexible schedules will impact both men and women equally and in different ways going forward. But it does mean that retention is really the name of the game this next year. You know, candidates in that five to 10 years of experience have a lot of bargaining power right now because a lot is falling on their shoulders because they're having to step up to meet some of the gaps in the workforce. So it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out in the years ahead. No, absolutely. I mean, we're seeing that pushback a lot. Like everybody wants the middle, you know, management worker, but where are they able to go to find their biggest compensation boost? I think we're seeing a lot of employers talk about that. Retention is key. Are we going to see retention bonuses or how will that flesh out in terms of paying your existing workers? Because that is the disparity. Like you're hiring new workers and you're having to pay a lot more to get them onboarded kind of creates the disgruntled middle management folks and creates a lot of churn and flex in that in that demographic, which I think is anecdotally we're hearing is a big is a big pain point. Which industries are generating the highest compensation? Not all cleared careers are created equally. We find there are certain industries that consistently pay more than others. What are those kind of key six-figure salary price points within the cleared industry? Right. That's why it's always the million-dollar question when people want to say, do you make more with a top-secret clearance over a secret clearance? Well, you know, it depends. <laughs> what kind of job do you have? So that is one of the interesting things that shakes out from this. You know, both software and systems engineering were the highest paid occupations this year. So IT fields definitely step up. They are consistently six-figure salary occupations, even if not all IT or engineering fields are, you know, at the, the peak end of that. They are consistently in the six-figure salary range. But usually business sales or management fields keep pace with the tech fields. This year, systems and software took a big leap ahead. The overall average for both occupations are just under 130000 And then business sales is about like 10000 less. I think it's really helpful to look at the occupations by experience level, especially though, because that's really where you see um, what the true averages are, you know. So of course, education, certifications, those are also going to move your compensation dial as well. But those two fields, IT software and systems engineering, were the highest this past year. Yeah, I'm going to be really curious. That's, what I love about this report is that we've done it annually for a number of years now. And again, you taking over the survey has been fantastic because you have such a great mind for the data. So I, and I, you know, that matters. And so we see like a lot of interesting nuggets pulled out. 
again, seeing these kind of anecdotal, it sort of makes sense to me that business sales fell just because we just saw like sales professionals were not traveling as much. I mean, it, the good thing is government was keeping pace and was steady, but it makes kind of sense that if you're an, a sales professional, you just weren't maybe generating the churn that you were. But in the IT sector, obviously, uh, I mean, a lot of companies had to scale up what they were doing within tech, again, to hire and to retain those folks and to keep them from, you know, pants optional, 100% remote route, and also just create the technology to allow all these people to work remote who were. So just the demand for tech, you know, increase, you know, business sales, you just, there were just shifts in how those people operated. That doesn't mean, you know, we're seeing things reopen. We're seeing company travel happening again. We're seeing our events, you know, calendars open again, in-person things happening. I'll be curious to see how that those continue to shift if tech remains king or if we start to see, you know, what else moves the needle and where things move. And I think like even with funding from the government in like coming in and supporting corporations so they could keep their doors open, you get contracts mods to extend the period of performances so you can keep your staff on. There weren't you didn't feel a lot of layoffs in 2020 like other industries felt. But what that does is really kick the can down the road, even for like sales to try to hit the streets again to get in more (laughs) revenue for the company. And that stability was great in 2020. You felt it a little bit differently in 2021 when the doors opened back up, though. That's kind of how it it worked a little bit more in the defense industry compared to like other industries. So you talked at the beginning a little bit about how recruiters or hiring managers can use the survey. So if you're a recruiter or hiring manager, maybe someone on the, again, the attracting talent side of this piece, you know, how is the compensation report useful? Yeah, I think the survey data really gives recruiters and hiring managers a pulse point on the industry just from a lot of different angles. You know, we look at location, we look at years of experience, occupation, along with a lot of other questions. And it's really a unique industry here. It's helpful, I think, to have somebody who's in tech, to have tech industry standards that you're pairing with them with. But, you know, a software engineer, like who's reporting their compensation from Facebook, doesn't have to fit into a contract billet for five years experience on a DOD contract at a designated labor rate, or even within, you know, an overall contract value that was, you know, what somebody had an initial proposal. (laughs) So there's just a lot of other constraints that defense recruiters work under. So I think understanding industry norms and changes really helps drive what the salary negotiations can be, you know, with a large dose of reality here. So not only does the occupation um, and experience factor in, we look at all the different states and which states are paying more. And of course, not every location pays the same. So the higher the cost of living, the higher the salary, even with like the DC candidates, we looked at who reported that they work inside the Beltway. And for those of you who do not know what the Beltway is, it's 495 that makes the huge loop around the DMV, the DC, Maryland, Virginia area. And if you work inside that Beltway, there was about a $20,000 difference to those who are in that same area, but outside the Beltway. So even that information really matters when you're coming up with a good salary number for your candidate that you're trying to get in the door. And like speaking of DC, we also asked candidates what they liked about DC, because sometimes that could be a hard area to recruit for. Even though we have a lot of candidates there, that area actually dropped by a few percentage points this past year. We asked what would make them happy. Candidates happy if they can't have remote work, because that's another big conversation point this, this past year. We saw for both of those that opportunities and compensation, those were key pieces of the satisfaction puzzle. We sometimes want to get really crazy with offering these cool, we want to look cool to employees and candidates of like, you know, this great office environment, 
outings as a team. And those things can help. Those are great. But really, the overwhelming response from these candidates was that they want meaningful work, they want opportunities, and they want compensation. And depending upon the candidate, compensation might even come higher. Inflation is <laughs> is rising. So, you know, it's one of those things where you, you kind of have to make sure there's enough. So if you can't give them really cool things to do, at, you know, or make them feel like they're making a difference, at least pay them more. That's the response that we're hearing from the candidates. Those are the major important things for them. Yeah, you can't, you can't pay the young people in pizza anymore. <laughs> I hear that no longer works. It worked for me when I graduated. It was a different era, though. It was different back then. I love that. This is on you know Federal News Network, Federal News Radio. They're going to get that piece of it, the, the Beltway. I might make a t-shirt that says that, the 20K Beltway bonus. I mean, that's like pretty significant. It makes, I don't know, it makes you, it makes you think about, about where you live. And it and it makes sense with the cost of living and the housing market. And those things are, you know, are frequently tied. And we see the housing market right now is just very hot. And so the demand for talent also very hot. And the commute too. So like, that's a key piece of your remote work puzzle too. Like when people are asking for remote because they don't want to make that commute. Well, the reason why you have that commute is because it does get you more money. If you are going to work in the city, yes, it does cost money to park your car or to ride the metro or all those other things. Like those are factored into the salary as part of the cost of living. So I think that's a helpful tool for recruiters to realize in the bargaining piece. Like there are things that go into that number. Yeah. No, for sure. I think it's, yeah, that's a critical piece of it. So it's, it is, you mentioned this before, you know, what it takes to attract candidates. It is annual promotion kind of season. We see salary increases. We see, you know, the White House getting ready there, budget proposals for federal pay increases. If you have this, you know, how is it useful for maybe candidates to take this data set and, you know, use it when they're having that annual review conversation with their employer? I think sometimes it feels overwhelming to talk about raises or talk about money with your employer. And I get that. But in the reality is it's cheaper for employers to retain a good employee than to try to fill their shoes. So really look at that location, you know, what your occupation is and what your experience numbers are in the the salary data. See where your salary lines up and negotiate accordingly. I think it's especially important to do this if you're in one of the six-figure salary occupations. Like I said before, this list generally has the same players each year. So I think checking out experience levels to see where you fall on that spectrum can really help to see where you need to move the dial. And that can also open up conversations. So it doesn't have to be you know, give me this compensation or I will leave. And for some people, that is what they do, right? But that doesn't necessarily, it's a small industry. So that's not the tactic that you want to take. I think it's a great opening conversation with your management to see how you can actually grow as an employee and have more opportunities to show them that that is where your heart is. Because if you have a field that's adjacent to one that's actually higher paying, you might see if you can get other training, you know, or education so you can really make future moves. So that way your resume is not static. I think some of the best managers get experience in like a few different areas so that when you're, because when you're managing projects, you have so many touch points into all these different industries and things that you have to be familiar with. So kind of getting a more well-rounded experience can actually pay off later when you are able to move into a management position if that's what you want to do. It's something the government's talking about for a long time. And like you say, I think, you know, you hope that as they look to improve onboarding into government and also offboarding, that they would factor that in as well. And in terms of how you think about, you know, government career progression, we've seen a lot of reforms in the clearance process. I think um, government knows they need to make some pretty significant reforms in their hiring process. We'll see if it happens. 
Anyway, so thank you so much, Jill Hamilton with clearancejobs.com for joining us today to talk about the Security Clearance Compensation Report. Check it out online. Search, not while you're driving on the Beltway, people, but search when you're back at your desk. Look in the show notes. We'll have a link to it there. Or you can search it at clearancejobs.com. Find a link to that 2022 Security Clearance Compensation Report. You will be armed with all of the compensation intelligence you need to take back to your employer to use in your hiring efforts. Thanks again, Jill. Attorney advertisement, not a guarantee or warranty of results. I'm attorney Sean Bigley. The denial or revocation of your security clearance is a devastating blow, but effective legal representation can make a difference. Contact my team at Bigley Ranish LLP for a free case evaluation. Find us online at biglylaw.com. Federal security clearances are all we do. Welcome back to Security Clearance Insecurity. I am attorney Sean Bigley, and I'm here with my co-host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. We're talking this segment about anxiety and security clearances. And Lindy, this is a a real hot topic these days with COVID and, you know, folks who I think have had a rough couple of years. No, absolutely. I think, you know, the mental health piece of it, we've seen a lot of organizations and agencies. I think ODNI has even at the beginning of the pandemic tried to provide reassurances around that. Like if you're having anxiety, if you're having issues, get help. I mean, I've seen a lot of companies, including in the defense industry, try to be proactive about helping their workforces through it. But I mean, it's been called kind of a nationwide pandemic, even, you know, before the pandemic, the issue of anxiety, people, you know, there's more people who are taking antidepressants, there's a lot more diagnosed anxiety disorders and issues. And it has some kind of direct correlations into the security clearance process, both for current clearance holders and potentially for applicants as well. So have you seen it come up in your practice? Have you had, you know, the mental health piece of it rarely comes up in clearance denials and revocations. So I'm just curious if you've even, you know, had somebody come to you that's had kind of anxiety issues be a part of their process. Oh, absolutely. We deal with this actually all the time. And you're right that, you know, mental health reasons are a very small percentage of the security clearance denials and revocations in the aggregate across the government. It's usually like 2% or less of all the security clearances that are denied and revoked each year across the government. So, you know, that's sort of the first thing that I would tell anybody who's worried about their mental health history and their ability to get or Uh, retain a security clearance. You're not alone. This is a very common issue. And the reality is that 98% of the time, it's a non-issue. That being said, there are exceptions. One of the most frequent ways that we encounter anxiety as an issue is actually not for somebody who's being denied or revoked a security clearance. It's people who are in the application process and that anxiety is getting the better of them. Will I be denied? Will I be revoked? I, I, I have to have this clearance. Otherwise, I can't work. I can't put food on the table. Is this going to be an issue for me? And so we have to look at you know, sometimes medical records, medical history, we have to sometimes talk with people's medical providers, their psychologists, other mental health professionals, and try to get an opinion from those folks who are the experts of whether or not this person's condition is such that it would hamper their ability to safeguard sensitive information, or it would uh, in any way make them a danger to themselves or others. Those are really the only sort of times when somebody's mental health becomes a real problem. In 2016, the SF-86 changed, and we are just now still seeing folks who are coming to us and saying, the last time I filled out an SF-86 for my secret was 10 years ago. That was before the 2016 change. So they have no clue 
that this is a completely different ballgame now. And if you look at the current version of the SF-86, the, the 2016 version, which is still current, it's actually completely different on the mental health section. It removed those questions about have you ever in the last seven years seen a mental health practitioner with a couple of exceptions, and it replaced it with a new set of questions. There's more of them, but they're very narrowly tailored, and they include a list of specific mental health diagnoses that are reportable. They're sort of the more extreme end with bipolar, antisocial personality disorder, things like that. You will notice, though, if you look at it, that depression, anxiety are not on the list. If you're filling out an SF-86 again and you're worried that, gosh, last time I filled this out 10 years ago, whatever, I had to list all this stuff. I really don't want to do that again. I'm worried that, you know, it's going to become an issue don't fear. <laughs> it's 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 not on there anymore. Yeah, well there's the two sides that I think, you know, folks who might be, you know, nervous because they have an anxiety disorder, but then also I do think, you know, the prevalence of anxiety does play out in what we see through the security clearance application process. I think especially anybody who's ever gone up for a polygraph, your anxiety issues may make applying for a higher level clearance a bad idea for you. So again, especially anxiety issues, probably not going to come up at a secret level clearance. You're not going to have to list them. But I do think, so there's the two sides of it. Like if you have an anxiety issue, think maybe before, if 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 you have the constitution to go through that polygraph po- process, especially if it's a, a full scope polygraph, because I have seen that kind of manifest. We're like, oh, this, yeah, this person definitely is dealing with some anxiety and that that has played into their ability to be able to pass this exam. Nothing to do with their truthfulness, but their just personality is maybe not, <laughs> is not enable them to pass the exam. I completely agree. And that is a really good point that we should mention. You know, when we're talking about filling out the SF-86, or more of security clearance holders, you know, that's their greatest exposure to the process, right? They don't, you know, maybe they'll meet with an investigator, but the the meeting with the investigator is going to largely track the SF-86 unless there's something that the investigator has uncovered, you know, during the investigation that you didn't report or somebody they interviewed has volunteered something that's potentially problematic. The issue, though, with polygraphs, as you point out, is the, the small percentage of clearance holders who have to take one that's a different ball of wax. And, you know, with anxiety or a similar diagnosis, sometimes people sort of let that get the better of them and they start treating the polygraph as a confessional. And we've talked a little bit about this, I think, previously. I know I've written about it before on clearance jobs, but once you start going down that rabbit hole, things tend to go sideways really fast. If you are contemplating applying for a position that requires a polygraph and you do have and diagnosis of anxiety, I think a little bit of soul searching before you go into it as far as, you know, can I get through this process? Is my anxiety going to be an impediment where, you know, if I'm put in the hot seat and I'm being pressed repeatedly about things, am I going to sort of go into that fight or flight mode where I start, you know, divulging things that aren't being asked about or giving rambling answers that are going to be dissected and and misinterpreted? Those are the situations that yeah, <laughs> you need to really think twice. Well, no, and I think it's proactive mental health is key here too. And that's why I've said for a lot of those folks, you know, yeah, if you're using your polygraph as a confessional, maybe that's a sign that you need to just get a counselor, you know, because sometimes you see people kind of use their their job application process and they start oversharing things. And you're like, you're looking for somebody to talk to 
this is not the format or the place to do it. I don't know. For me, that's just kind of that just seems like a baseline, you know, whether it's whether it's your mom or your spouse or a paid professional counselor of some type. If you're going if you're going to have a polygraph, talk it out with somebody ahead of time, not prep. I'm not I'm not I'm not advising people to prep. I'm going to have to always have to clarify. But I am just saying, like, if you're anxious about it, I think bottling it up inside and then uh, having your first encounter with the polygraph examiner probably is not going to go well for you. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, we sort of joke sometimes that our job is half attorney, half psychologist, because oftentimes, you know, we will talk to people who, you know, they sort of treat their legal consultation as the same opportunity to sort of unload and and share a lot of things that really aren't pertinent. And, you know, I don't begrudge anybody that we're here to listen. And, and if you think there are things that are potentially issues that you need to run by an attorney, go for it. That's That's what we're here for. But at the same time, you know, folks do need to be cognizant that talking to an attorney, for example, is within the context of legal privilege. Talking to a polygraph examiner or an investigator, anything you tell them, even if it isn't necessarily relevant, they now have the the right and the ability to adjudicate. So if they ask you about issue X and you start telling them all about issue Y that wasn't asked about, that's something you're, you're basically creating as an issue that, that didn't need to be there. So I will add to that, if you feel like you need mental health treatment, you need to talk to somebody, go get it. We get people all the time, a lot, uh, particularly veterans, and I'm going to actually be talking later this month to a a group at the VA about this issue where there's this real stigma against seeking out uh, mental health treatment. And there's a fear in addition to that, that doing so is an automatic disqualifier for a security clearance. It's not true. It's very rare as we talked about. And frankly, I think the most important thing that people should understand is not getting help when you need it is actually a bigger issue. If the government says, hey, we're real concerned about you. Have you talked to somebody? Are you on medication? Are you getting treatment? And the answer is no. That's going to be viewed as a a judgment issue and a real problem. Whereas 98% of the time, if you go and get that help and you get the treatment you need and your condition is well managed, it's a non-issue. That is the point. And that is like when we look at the denials and revocations based on mental health issues, they are generally untreated mental health issues. So somebody has a severe delusional disorder, some something, and they are not seeking treatment for it. I mean, that is that is the issue that results in clearance denials and revocations if somebody has an issue and they're not seeking help. If you're proactively seeking help, that will actually help to mitigate denials or revocations based on those issues. So seeing a counselor, getting help, a lot of across the defense industry, DOD, there are more resources out there, free resources that people can take advantage of. So getting mental health help, seeing a counselor is good advice for for anyone, you know, even if you have a security clearance, that should certainly not preclude you. It should actually encourage you to do so. Yeah, absolutely. And the last thing I'll I'll point out on this is, you know, I think a lot of people are fearful that it's going to be cost prohibitive. Even if they have insurance, they think, oh my gosh, you know, if I have to go and see a psychologist or psychiatrist regularly, I'm going to be, you know, adding up these medical bills and it's just going to be awful. It's usually not the case. I mean, I, I obviously can't speak for every situation, but many times there are ways that you can get help you need at a relatively nominal or even no cost. And A lot of employers, including the federal government, have uh, employee assistance or EAP programs. That's often a great place to start if you just need somebody to talk to. Similarly, the VA for veterans has a pretty robust mental health program, especially for cases uh, with PTSD and, and similar issues. So there are resources out there. 
and don't bottle it up. You're, you're not alone and there are options. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance Insecurity with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley of security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.